Hey guys, welcome to the Grow Demand podcast, dedicated to helping B2B tech founders drive faster growth. I'm your host, Samuel Roberts, and I speak to exceptional founders, CMOs, sales leaders, and entrepreneurs who like to ignore the rules, do things differently, and create demand for their products. My goal is to bring you their ideas, strategies, and tactics to help you get more creative in your approach and help you scale. Hope you enjoy this episode, guys. Welcome uh, today, Malcolm. Thanks for joining me. Um, Malcolm is one of those insanely talented people that kind of works his magic within any role. Um, he's currently a chief strategy officer for Side Digital. He's built multiple businesses and he's worked as CEO, CIO, CTO, founder, MD, you know, the, the list goes on. So uh, welcome, Malcolm. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Very uh, nice to be joining you. So I'm here in sunny Singapore. Um, locked up in my office so i can actually get to an office to do some work which is nice i see you're um you're either in the most homely office i've ever seen uh, <laughs> or yeah you're at your place <laughs> the the yeah the the uh the kind of setup is try and avoid background distractions and you know things you don't want people to see whether that's you know uh clothes that have been left in a pile or whatever uh keeping it as professional as as possible so we obviously, I was, I was going to mention, we met in quite a funny sort of way, didn't we? In, um, we obviously, did, we did. long time ago now. Yeah, Jaeger in the House of Fraser, which is, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it's for me, it's quite strange because if we hadn't have met, I don't really know where I'd be career wise because that led me to, um, get me. That's that was your, where was it originally your web company? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So I co-founded yeah. that business some time ago and, and it was something that we just got chatting over buying, I think it was buying a shirt or something at the time. And we just got chatting. I can't, I can't remember how, but you expressed an interest in, in working in the digital space. And I, I said, well, you should get in touch with um, the management team at, at this local company that I used to um, own and run. And um, sort of one thing led to another for you. And we've kept in touch over the years ever since. And yeah. you've made a career out of the industry that I kind of nudged you towards. So <laughs> I'm partially yeah. to blame. <laughs> no, it's, it was, it was uh, Anthony was, I think, the guy that was at the um, Get Me. Yeah. And, and yeah, I was either selling you a, a suit or a... Um, a shirt but i think one thing i did remember from our chat was you said to me um because you would help me kind of pull out of retail and get into you know the tech industry or b2b design creative um that i had to do the same for someone else um later down yeah, the well, line yeah that's and, that's and, the karma thing <laughs> yeah well, well no i love that that sentiment and um it's sadly something i haven't yet been able to do but i'm hoping that you know I walk into a store if they still exist. And there's some um, student who's just finishing up and, you know, you can kind of give them a nudge in. Um, so maybe a, a good place to start is to run through kind of where you are now with um, Sci Digital and tell me if I'm saying that wrong. Um, but, you know, just a bit of an overview of how you got there and kind of where you've come from. Well, yeah, very interesting story. I mean, um, I, I kind of wear a number of hats at the moment. So I, I, I work with Side Digital, that's a, a, an e-commerce agency. So they're based in Southeast Asia, but they have clients all over the world. It's probably about the largest independent in the region, and I've known them for the best part of 10 years. They were a competitor to me when I had a business in Hong Kong doing the same thing. Um, and we were sort of more frenemies, so we, we got to know each other. And, and um, eventually I ended up working uh, with them as a consultant after um, my business in Hong Kong was sort of uh, old and I was a bit of a loose end so I helped them look at diversification so I, I'd help them on a, a few of their sort of progressive steps and I, I managed to uh, to work with them in a different capacity I'd hired them when I was at a, a, another agency and I needed some services so I, I then was on the customer side of things and um, and the only thing I'd never done was actually be an employee and uh, I share the same sort of um, ethical and moral beliefs as, uh, as the group chairman in terms of there's a right way of doing business profitably and doing the right thing by the people around you, work with good people, 
nurture the talent, develop it. They're very much an equal opportunities approach to um, employees and also working with really interesting customers to help them uh, mature their businesses. And so a lot of that resonated rather than just working for um, uh, any old agency. These guys, I, I'd seen um, they, their moral compass. I'd seen how they'd work from all the different angles of, um, of the operation, as I say, being inside and outside. Um, and I also could see that they needed help. Uh, their business needed to grow and become more profitable and diversify, and they were struggling to do that um, at an appropriate pace. And it was the case as to, well, why don't I do something with you guys? So I went into a sort of chief strategy officer. I, I knew in commerce really well. I'd done it for 20 plus years. I Thing by that point so it wasn't very difficult for me to sort of step right in and sort of uh, work with the ceo and the operational team in every angle whether it's sales marketing operations whatever it needed to be i could turn my hand to it mm -hmm. um, and once i'd helped get that business pointing off in the right direction i mean a very significant growth uh, both in terms of um, all the kpis you care about uh, whether it be profit headcount margin cash uh, customer growth, customer retention, staff retention, um, and also the corporate social responsibility things that we've been able to do, some of which are, are, uh, they've been sharing online recently. And, and their uh, business that's now significantly larger than it was when I first joined the company. And as that trajectory has carried on, my role has moved more into group. So the parent company of Side Digital has is about 10 plus businesses in all corners of the, uh, the world working on lots of different diverse areas. And I help out either as a consultant or run the operations or CEO or, um, or chief architect or whatever the, the necessary task is. So I may be in any one week jumping across those different uh, businesses. So it's a more of um, uh, a, a sort of running an incubator um, from an investment point of view. I spend time helping push all these little businesses forward to try and mm. get the next big thing. Um, so I find that really, really interesting. It's quite diverse. So e-commerce is mm. kind of the, the thing I love. It's kind of my passion. If I wasn't getting paid, I'd be doing it in some capacity or another anyway. Um, mm. But being able to help all the other businesses that uh, that sit in the family and what have you is, uh, gives me the entertaining part of it because I'm always stretching my brain how to do that for, uh, for the different parts of the organization. Yeah, so there's probably there's two things I might be interested to pick into here. One is um what was holding side digital back so almost from an agency view what did they need to do to grow and then we could probably dive into the customers of side digital and what from an e-commerce perspective you do to help them grow sure so i'll be reasonably general with this uh, for confidentiality's sake but in in businesses like side digital the, the mm. growth curve is it's not it's not a straight line i mean frankly they plateau at different um uh, uh, different areas and, and in many businesses there's a common set of uh, uh, problems when you can go in and have a look at how to address them is um, sell right, contract right, deliver right. They were pretty good at delivery but when I looked at the the selling it wasn't that they, they weren't okay at selling, they were in some cases selling to the wrong people. The deals could never have been profitable as an example but it's still revenue so you get the revenue keep the lights on and worry about the margin down the line um contracting some of the contracts weren't great they didn't allow flexibility for the business to go out and and, and turn a project into an account into a long-term relationship they were just sort of running from one project to the next which is um as elephant hunting um they didn't have really an executable strategy on how to uh, sort of do the sales and marketing. So how do they want to be presented? Um, uh, what do you stand for? How are you different to other people? Because if you're just on price, which is quite common in this corner of the world, it's a race to zero. Um, and there's plenty of people that would do the same work for less, whether whether it's better or not is a highly debatable topic, but typically the deals are signed based on price. So, um, so you can't be just that. You've got to be able to add value to the customer and be able, uh, able to articulate what that value is and also be able to demonstrate your ability to realize that. So there were some of those things that were missing. The other things were that they'd done the same thing for quite a long time in a very changeable market. So you've got to diversify at some point. Otherwise, if, if you do nothing, thing um you're basically just that standing still carry on doing the same thing you're going backwards because either 
your partners, the industry, the customers are all moving around you. So the only thing constant is change. So you have to evolve, but have a pathway to say, well, we want to go from this position to this. And and the bit that with side digital specifically is what they were really good at. No one ever challenged them on this was their knowledge of how to do commerce for complex B2B businesses. So diversifying beyond that to say, well, let's just do general IT type of stuff. It wouldn't have made much sense because there was a lot of competition that would do general because general is quite easy to do. But we had a very believable story. We're basically best part of a decade worth of, of examples of how to take very complicated things and do a very economic high quality solution. So don't throw away um, uh, your roots. What we then had to do was build around that to say, well, if you're going to double your revenues over a modest period of time, um, how much can you get out of each of the channels, a relationship with a partner that might, um, like a Salesforce, a CRM type of solution, an SAP type of business, an Adobe, those sort of vendor relationships. You can get so much revenue through having that partnership, but it, our aspirations inside digital were beyond that. So what we had to do was make sense to grow the disciplines in the different areas in parallel. So the skills might be portable across the technology spectrum, but we just needed to be able to pull enough revenue out of each of the different uh, sales channels uh, to allow the business to grow. So that um, sales strategy, I've been quite basic on some of it, but the sales strategy and having a, a, a sort of long-term goal was what our identity should be with some of the things that were, were, were missing and is often missing in other companies. They're very good at doing, what are we doing this week? What are we doing next week? But in terms of a credible long range plan, it gets very, very misty. Um, mm -hmm. And you're not quite sure why you're doing this. Whereas if you look at say very successful business businesses, which have had time to mature, a good one that's bouncing around the stock market is something like Tesla. There's an identity to that in terms of the brand, what it stands for, what things they're doing, their inventive or innovation strategy around making things, not just around cars, it's about energy efficiency and a whole host of other things. Anyway, there's plenty of brands that fall into that and those tend to be the successful ones. The ones that don't last are, well, you saw just this week, Debenhams for once in the UK very much lost its identity many years ago and mm. um, what do they stand for anymore how are they any different well the short answer was they weren't so they with and die so in terms of you know there's, there's some barriers here that for me uh, i always wonder how you overcome them so businesses are the way they are for a very specific reason whether it's the existing culture whether it's whoever the head head boy or girl is and their idea of what the company should be is you know exactly what they think it is they, they steer it so how do you come in and you know it's almost persuading them to take themselves out of this kind of rut they've got themselves in and they're probably feeling a bit especially if things aren't going well there might be defensiveness and things like that is there any kind of i don't know tactics or ways that you persuade and negotiate to re-steer yeah. things very good question. I mean, generally speaking, it's a it's a case of picking your battles. Um, I'm normally invited into business because they've already recognised that they have challenges, so they're more receptive to it. If I go knocking on the door of some company and they've never heard of me and they think everything's fine, it doesn't matter how persuasive I, I am. The reality is they're not going to listen to you because they don't want to. You've got to wait for it to be on fire almost before the game. Right? Okay, we need someone that can help us with that. So th th there's that opportunity. Um, period in terms of we need help we need someone who's done it before how are we going to get ourselves out of this um the the next part then is when you're actually within the business it, it isn't a, an easy ride either because there is the persistence that you need and having a clear concise plan as to how you would do these things and you've got to realize that sometimes plans will change because uh, other things come up other opportunities come up that you might uh, want to diversify in so you can pivot the business so not being too wedded to, to an idea to allow yourself to um uh hear other opinions and i say here not just listen uh, uh not just listen but here understand investigate peer review and then if you have to pivot and say well i kind of thought maybe this market was going to be fantastic and actually this one is okay well we need to understand how to change rather than being combative and and and, and stuck um you've also got to understand who the boss is 
so you can take a degree of responsibility. If it's your business, your name over the door, you're the one that signs the checks, you make the calls right or wrong. Um, if you're, to all intents and purposes, an employee, paid director or otherwise, then you've got to understand that you're there to give advice to the business. If the collective wisdom of the other VPs, directors, stakeholders, shareholders, whatever they may be, is to disagree with you, that's perfectly respectful. That's absolutely fine. If you don't want to stay for the journey, then you can move on. No one's there out of necessity. It's that they're out of because they feel that they can contribute. And generally speaking, I mean, there are people that stick with a mortgage and just go to the same business year after year, um, not necessarily pushing it forward. But um, I, I mean, I tend to work more in the SME space. Um, so typically the business units are under a thousand staff. So as a result of that, I, I would tend to have a, a high degree of influence, um, uh, whereas if I worked in a large scale um, consulting firm, plenty around with 100,000 people. Um, my sphere of influence and impact is going to be, unless you sat on the leadership team, it's not going to be much. So it is a little bit harder. And in in some of those organisations, you have a highly politicised uh, environment. Everyone's got their own agenda. I mean, usually they're trying to earn more money and will um, um, wheel and deal, duck and dive and what have you to, to get where they want to get. Um, and I mean, those sort of shark tank environments are challenging uh, for everyone, but um, there are good people in there. The important thing is to understand what everyone else really wants out of a deal. So when you're putting in progressive change, who's going to lose, who's going to win, why are we doing it? And if you've got an ethical view, I mean, I tend to be pretty uh, uh, non-political in terms of career. Uh, it's about what's the right thing to do for the collective good, um, not why do I come out of it better or not necessarily? Um, uh, but if you're doing that, then it's very hard for someone to say, well, actually, Malcolm's going to get a better deal for this or whatever. No, it's just you, you're paid to do a job and that's progress the business. Um, and if you get a bonus off the back of that, well, whoopee do, but that's not why you're there in the first place or shouldn't be from a moral perspective. Do the right thing for the business and, and let the business decide if it wants to reward you. If not, there's always someone else that will hire talents. But in the political side of things one of the sort of again a more of a political term is lobbying one of the important factors when uh, decisions are being made is to spend time with the stakeholders that um, uh, the changes will have an impact on talk to them understand uh, what it is their concerns are understand how they can benefit out of it and then ensure that when you're pitching the solution back in you might be in a board meeting where you're presenting it back that you've spoken to each of the key stakeholders especially the ones that don't agree with you you've got that you almost have to listen to them more because they're the ones that can sync the plan and spending time understanding why and i've often had um descendants in um say digital transformation programs, big tech investments that force the business to operate a different way. Um, often the most assertive people that are against you, when you spend time with them and you present back to the business, taking in, illustrating their particular points and concerns so everyone can see that you've listened to them and you, you've addressed their points. They tend to be quite passive afterwards. They go, yes, okay, I was heard. Mm -hmm. um, if it's something that just has to be done, then that's the dictatorship of um, the, the, the CEO chairman can come in and sort of say, we're going to have to do this whether we like it or not. It's different when you've got shareholders and, and other such things, but, um, but that lobbying technique is a useful one. And after that, it's a case of uh, ensuring that you've listened and understood all points. Don't come up with an idea in isolation and expect everyone else to buy into it because they'll have heard it for 30 minutes and you've worked on it for three months. So you have to actually get them on board as well. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that one where there's this thing of the there'll be a, a group of people that a change or a campaign or an activity or whatever it may be is going to be, you know, this is the plan, but the plan was actually, or the strategy was actually brought together in isolation, whether it was a single person or a couple of people. And it's been, you know, you haven't really had chance to get in and discuss this collectively. And then, you know, you're not, you don't really have the autonomy with your role, especially if your role is to be a bit more strategic or to lead. Um, you know, you're coming back to your point on being you know, someone listening to you, or I think that's something that I've experienced in the past, which is um, it, it's frustrating. It, it doesn't mean that 
you know, your opinion or your approach needs to be take, took as gospel. But I think just being heard and just being in the conversation means that, well, you know, as a collective group, I have to trust that the six people or the eight people in this room, on average, we're all going to come to the best decision collectively. Um, and I think because you're included, you feel heard, don't you? When you're not in that kind of environment, or that's not the kind of structure or the way decisions are made, you're gonna, you're not gonna feel great. Absolutely, I think that there's, there's there's a view. If I if I remove my examples from the equation and look at people that are at different levels of their career and how they influence upwards, then there are different techniques that I've had to employ as I've sort of risen through the ranks, so to speak, and had different roles in different types of businesses, and the techniques are moderately different in some of them. Um, but generally speaking, if you're most organizations, if you can have um, uh, a relationship with whether it's mentorship, whether it's just a connection, whether it's a semi-social with someone who's a decision maker in the business. So say, for example, if you work within finance in the business, the CFO will be someone typically that you can go and talk to. OK, they're very busy, but if you've got an idea or you've got a thought about it, then going and trying and, and understand, well, here's what I think we could do. Why wouldn't that work? get them thinking and you have to take your time with these things trying to force a change through when you're not at the in the driving seat it generally that's a recipe for failure and the other thing that helps get um changes through into the business is an intimate knowledge of the business understand what if you change this what's going to break on the other side and how do i avoid mitigating that so um if you've thought about those things, then what you're trying to do is remove the barriers to adoption so that people go, oh, actually, yeah, that seems to be good. And he's thought about this, this and this, and, and okay, we can go ahead and do it. So um, yeah, I, I think have a clear plan, understand everyone else's challenges around the table as to why it wouldn't be adopted. Go and talk to the people through that lobbying process to find, to, to find out what their concerns would be so that when you come to that presentation at whatever level that will be in the business, You've answered all the questions around the table. The meeting is almost a formality rather than some sort of explanation process. And bear in mind that your priority isn't necessarily theirs. So um, mm. it might take some time. I've, I've had many ideas um, that I've had to wait six or 12 months for the, say, a CEO to come back and say, I've had a great idea. You know, that was mine. <laughs> Yeah, but it yeah. doesn't matter if you if you get there one way or the other um and sometimes you just have to allow time to pass adequately for it to become more of a priority the fact that you saw it long ahead if it's still relevant to do hey it's about winning the war not the battles yeah i'd agree with that those those are some great great tips there malcolm in terms of um just coming back to e-commerce um what do you see a lot of e-commerce businesses get wrong what stops them from from growing and I guess what separates the average ones from the, the great ones? Well, I, I think it's a very good one and it ties between both of our roles from, from you much more on the sort of marketing side of things. And, and the biggest issue I see is the, um, just the assumption that still that build it and they will come. Um, what you've got to do is um, e-commerce is a sales channel. Um, and it is quite complicated in itself. There's lots of different facets to it and they, the landscape's ever-changing and a lot of regulatory, especially if you're selling to um, across multiple channels in multiple regions, multiple product types, et cetera. It's, it's not as trivial as people like to think. It is cheaper than setting up physical stores in many cases, um, but there, there is a lot to it. Um, but typically it's not tied in with any form of um, digital marketing strategy in terms of, right, okay, once we built this thing, why are the customers going to buy it from us in the first place? So there may be a million dollar investment in some platform on the assumption that customers will want to do something, but typically the customer experience side of things, we talk about maybe in the design side of things, the user experience and user interface, UX, UI, what it looks like in the flow through the process. Um, those are pretty standard in many cases because customers know if I go to Tesco's and I add something to my shopping cart, I go to uh, another online store, it's going to be broadly a similar experience. They know they're looking for a cart button and they know there's a checkout. So consumers know that UX UI, but the customer experience bit is missing is why is the customer going to use it? What are the products that they really want? Often that's left out completely and a project starts and, and there's some sort of head scratching as to why are we doing this in the first place? So actually doing the uh, almost the market research to justify what is it that the customers really want? 
Um, how are we going to ensure that they're serviced through these channels appropriately? The technology is almost secondary to it. Uh, uh, and I'm a huge technology fan, as you know. So for me to say that should push <laughs> the point home, it's really, really important to understand how that customer works. And if you're an agency doing it, then it's not just you understanding your customer, because typically they might be a brand or what have you. It's you understanding their customer. So it's the customer's customer bit. So you've got to think in the mindset of that customer. And, and the market today, especially for if you're in straightforward B2C retail, the customers have very little loyalty. Uh, whatever product you're selling, someone else is selling it and probably cheaper. The customers just haven't found it yet. So why are they sticking with you and how are you going to make sure that you're adding uh, value? And that often is around the experience, not just uh, can you get through the checkout quickly and does it look okay uh, and how is it priced? And some of the big brands should look at some small companies that are um, almost in startups and how they manage a relationship with the customer. It feels a lot more personal. Um, I, I've had products delivered with handwritten notes from the staff to say, thank you for buying this. It really makes a difference to our business. And if you're not going to get that from Amazon, different type of experience. But if you're looking at being different in the market, you actually have to really value the customers. It goes back to the same sort of thing that in old high street retail, you'd walk into a store and they would know who you are. So if I walk back into the Jaeger store where you were working, you'd say, hi, Malcolm, how are you? And you build up a relationship with your customers. And that's now, that got very, very fragmented in terms of the only relationship was spamming customers uh, three times weekly with an email, hoping that they come back and spend the money. Um, uh, and then it got into sort of personalization saying, hi, Malcolm, will you come back in and spend some money with us? And we think you might buy these products. There are some companies that do that very badly at scale. Amazon is a great one as an example that I had. I bought an electric toothbrush for myself for Christmas a few years back and received numerous emails selling me more. How many do I need? So they're just so big that they can't understand. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make economic sense for them to understand the subtle nuances of the customer. And then, of course, you've got the marketplaces, which um, whilst they are high volume experiences and very convenient for you to do product discovery, I didn't realize I wanted one of those type of things. Um, the quality of the consumer experience, the quality of the customer service, et cetera, is very average. Um, so where um, uh, companies can come into e-commerce is by understanding how do we look after this customer for a long time? How do we solve the problems that they have? And you see this not just in uh, B2C, but also in B2B where I spend a lot of my time these days is that um, that's a sort of laggard in commerce, which is sort of 10 years plus behind the B2C experience. So they're moving into a manufacturer that's sold solely through uh, direct accounts and wholesale, so may have 20 customers, is now saying I want to go into a B2C world. And the way that you operate, um, you have to have much more efficient processes. So not everything can be customized. The way that you communicate to those customers, their expectation that they're going to only buy maybe one or two products off you a year, perhaps, rather than being one or two orders a week. So the mindset is different. So it's appreciating those subtleties within the uh, the marketplace. Um, the other thing is not to get too distracted with every social media channel that's on the market. I mean, um, the, the the footers on some cor uh, corporate e-commerce websites where they added the Facebook and then it was an Instagram and then done and before they know they got TikTok and God knows whatever off the end of it. And the marketing team have no way of effectively managing these entirely independent channels for communication. They all require different media. They're all published and managed differently, different set of statistics to determine whether they're working. I mean, in many cases, it's not economically viable to be in all of these different markets and you don't need to be. You kind of, have, again, have to pick your battles on, on what makes the most sense to your customers. And if you're not sure, ask them. I mean, how, how many products have they bought via Facebook or Instagram stores versus this. It's a, there's a good product discovery and they're good for things like communication, but you, you're not seeing huge amounts of um, uh, sales traffic driven through the likes of say uh, uh, Twitter or TikTok. They're great for ad revenue in, in some of those environments, but they're not necessarily great for, for straightforward commerce, but again, varies by market. Uh, and customers are buying things differently as well. If you take some of the more emerging markets, so still China is very new to e-commerce, but it's 
dwarfs almost everywhere else just because the volume of the customers and there's very little competition to it. It's, it's the logistics are so easy and straightforward. It's almost free two hour delivery on everything from uh, in most major cities, but um, they do a lot of um, uh, sort of video based selling. Now I'm seeing a lot more of that where on closed networks like a WeChat, which is basically it's, it's payment, commerce, social, all in, wrapped in one little bubble. Um, and people will sell on video like we're using now with a sort of Zoom type, uh, type of style where they're doing product demonstrations and things like that. And I worked in TV shopping for many years, great fun medium. And people really like that. It's a, it's a sort of cross between sort of um, entertainment and, and, and uh, retail and you can coin an Americanism for it. But, uh, but uh, those type of uh, channels are getting a, a lot more popular in terms of um, uh, brands using those. Don't see it much in, in the B2B space, but B2C, they're starting to use some of those social channels. So again, I think um, just to kind of recap on that long monologue is the commerce side of things, really got to understand your customer experience. Um, you've really got to understand how you're going to market to the customers to actually get them in and, uh, and use it. You've got to know how to differentiate yourself. The technology, I think, is really secondary. And don't try and be in all the places all the time for everyone. It just doesn't make economic sense. The margins typically are not there in the product. There's some great insight to there. I mean, I can definitely feel from a marketing point of view, you know, trying to manage a multitude of platforms. And especially when you know, people don't realize what goes into creating content, especially if it, let's say it's video, um, you know, whether it's TikTok, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's Instagram, you know, there's different sizes for export, there's different audiences. So it's, it's, I think it's not coming back to what you mentioned about the customer, which is instead of being seller centric, the customer centric view is to say, where are the customers? How do they want to consume the information? And then, yeah, we'll go with these channels. So these are the channels that are delivering the most closed one revenue or, you know, the most products are, are being bought through Instagram, whatever it may be. But when it's just a kind of, oh, we're not on this platform. So we, we need to get on there and we need to start creating without kind of any, again, decision, proper decision-making strategy. What, what do our customers actually use? You know, have we spoken to any? Um, it, it becomes a bit of a nightmare. So maybe um would it be useful i think to talk maybe into a, a couple of projects so there's there's two projects that i've seen through side digital um and, and again we, we could we could jump into a few others if if you think that might be better for, the, for this example but i saw toyota malaysia and edwin um i noticed that you know their challenges were low customer engagement for to toyota fragmented customer data legacy crm um, no transparency in customer journey. So um, where did you start with, um, you know, with, with Toyota in kind of addressing these challenges? Well, without going uh, too much in, in depth with any individual um, uh, brand for a whole bunch of confidentiality reasons, there's, um, there are certainly some uh, very general topics that you'll, um, that you'll see for uh, some of these clients. So typically within Inside Digital, the engagement is normally around technology replatforms. What they've currently got, they'll already be trading in some capacity or another, but what they've currently got doesn't service the needs. They can't scale out of it. Typically, they're losing revenue. Uh, uptime, those sort of things, and they need to progress into an enterprise solution. So mm -hmm. most customers will be in first or second generation e-commerce, and then they're needing to move out of that. And all of those enterprises, especially large scale companies that you're sort of referring to, they will have a complex technology environment, big CRMs, big enterprise retail planning platforms, um, lots of people needing to use the system. So as a result of that, there's, uh, it, it, it's not a case of just bolting on, say, a Shopify site onto it and then away you go. An SME marketplace, yes, but on the sort of much more the heavy enterprise um, uh, side of things, you're needing to come up with a very good understanding of both the business processes. So, so how do they do a transaction on what the finance have to approve, how is stock managed, et cetera, et cetera, all the legal and compliance bits. And then you're trying to layer on a technology platform onto the top of that. And that requires a lot of business analysis and the solution architecture to try and work out how to fit business processes to the technology. Um, and the challenge that you find on projects of that nature, and I'll, I'll use the other example, which is probably the 
simpler end. So on the large enterprises, you're having to do a number of changes to the software solutions that are available. So big engineering job to make that fit the business. On the other end of the spectrum, you can get businesses that can actually change to fit the software. Now that might sound bad. I mean, it's called software because it's malleable. You can change it, manipulate it, and write it a different way. So ideally, you'd want the software to work your way. But then it may not be economic to support. A large-scale business can afford. Typically, it would have the margins and the volumes of sales to go through to modify the software to fit its business. And frankly, changing a ten thousand strong employee business to work slightly differently would just be uneconomic. So it's cheaper to change the software. That's on the working assumption that they've got a process that's right. In many cases, a smaller business like uh, uh, the several brands that we work with, um, uh, which are either B2B going B2C, so they don't have a process map for that type of consumer experience. So actually taking an existing solution, which could be a Shopify uh, for the for the brand that you mentioned, um, uh, Edwin, um, they can take a Shopify solution um, and broadly off the shelf, have that um, customized rather than heavily modified uh, from branding and product and search and marketing and those sort of things. But the core engine actually does what they need it to do. Um, and those solutions often have a very simple tie into marketing. They might have the same team that do their internal marketing or do their digital marketing. So some of those products will fit quite well. So what we're having to do is we're having to have a look at the sort of requirements matrix. What is the problem we're trying to solve for the customer and their customers? What is the best fit both in terms of technology stack and approach? Uh, that's going to get them to um, it's sort of time to value um, how can you get them into a solution where they can be trading quickly with all the problems gone away um, and and there are different types of um, technology solutions that you'd introduce so thankfully for in, in those examples that you gave from side digital they tend to work in the sort of Gartner um, top corner quadrant top corner uh, solutions. So there's some really good players in there, but not all those solutions fit all customers. So you've got to be a little bit uh, flexible and have the depth of expertise to understand which one should fit with which customer. And that requires having good consultants that know e-commerce inside out, can sit with the clients to understand their business. Um, uh, so a good match, what works really well um, with both those scenarios that you, uh, that you raised is in both cases, we had people that really understood uh, the internal business operations well, and we really understood the software technology and, and, uh, and how to make it do what they wanted. So you could put it together. If you work in a business where they don't really understand how their own business works, then you get um, a sort of misdirection from, uh, uh, from that side of things. So whatever tech you might put in, you, you could end up not quite recommending the perfect solution. But normally it's pretty clear. It's pretty black and white as to what is the right fit based on. Um, uh, functional requirements, overall budget, complexity of the environment, um, that type of thing. That makes sense. And and in terms of you know Shopify, I've I've seen that you know given really it's it's to my knowledge it's not uh, it's not an old platform. It's still relatively new in terms of people adopting it. And obviously it's very big in the e-commerce space. So why why kind of Shopify? What what's you know why is that even an option for you know, you've got your individual, if you want to call them a sole trader, people, you know, starting in literally their bedroom, starting a business and I'll use Shopify, but you've also got, um, you've also got brands, you know, with some weight behind them using them. So yeah, mm. well, what, what kind of makes Shopify the, the, the choice? Uh, well, uh, full disclosure here, uh, we're Side Digital's a Shopify partner, as they are for Salesforce, uh, <laughs> SAP and Adobe for Magento. So, so um, but to give an unbiased opinion, uh, what you tend to find is that um, uh, there are there are probably about a thousand credible e-commerce platforms you could buy into from homegrown open source solutions to the high-end enterprise and, and lots of them that could work. Um, but there's a handful that do really, really well. Um, most of the products that are that certainly that I've just mentioned tend to have a couple of different uh, product options in there. We have um, a commerce angle for B2C and a B2B capability as well. Now, some of the, again, depending on what type of 
uh, business you, you are, you might not be able to use a straightforward, um, uh, just one of the run-of-the-mill e-commerce solutions that are free. You might need something with a little bit more robust features in there. Um, so there are other types of customers that also want to tie the commerce solution into the rest of their business. So rather than it being standalone. So we have things like the um, Adobe based products and we also have Sitecore in, in our portfolio as well, which have a strong content commerce and marketing play where they stitch all of those uh, components together. That, that requires a more uh, basically a more mature customer to understand how to use all these parts together. But it goes back to the point I was saying earlier about why some uh, commerce solutions are not so successful because they don't have a marketing angle in there. If you just, mm. again, same thing, you just buy a, uh, a sort of Shopify type of solution and you don't market it um, and don't know how to, then you've got an e-commerce site. I mean, okay, it didn't cost you very much potentially to set up, but it's not going to be returning any value. So it's still a waste of money. So the important thing is being able to tie it back into those strategies. Um, where uh, particular types of businesses similar to Shopify have done very well is that they are um, making it less complicated. Um, a lot of these solutions now are sort of software as a service platform as a service. Uh, they're on the cloud. Um, there's a lot of trust now that the uh, I mean, cloud has just meant someone else is looking after the infrastructure. It's not gone away. You just don't have to worry about it to somebody else. Is doing that. Um, it has got commoditized now. So 10 years ago, you couldn't do that. You would put your own servers up online. You would host your own solution. You would have infrastructure security teams making sure it's safe. Um, and the likes of Shopify just say, there's a small monthly fee um, and you can set it up. You don't have to worry about service if your site's really busy on uh, Black Friday, 11-11, whatever, um, then we'll worry about that. And actually for many businesses especially if you're in the sma space and might not have it skills that's a good saving um, and you can focus just on the selling so the 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 the, the potential speed from uh setting up a store to trading something uh and in theory on some of these platforms if you've got all the wherewithal together you could put a product up on a store and sell it within an hour um, and now it's not a store that's probably not branded particularly well, but in terms of uh, literally getting to market very, very quickly, these turnkey solutions are pretty good. Now, out of that, how much extra time would you spend um, setting it up to do all the right things, like I say, branding, loading the product up, integrating it, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they are quick and um, very economic. Where they struggle and why there are uh, more expensive, broadly speaking, solutions there is that um, when you want to integrate that into a seamless part of the rest of your ecosystem, it gets harder. Shopify has Shopify Plus, which allows you to get into the guts of the system and start changing it around. So there are ways of doing that. And there's a new sort of uh, business to business solution um, that they're morphing it into through an acquisition that they made some time ago now. But, um, but, but they're getting there. But it's a constant sort of arms race in the e-commerce space to make it as easy as possible but still provide um, uh, their business customers with uh, the adequate controls that they would need. But I still think that there's, there's different sides of it. Not every customer will be on Shopify and can grow from a startup through Shopify through to being a billion dollar business. There, there will be some changes. Uh, and there are companies that have um, accommodated that. Uh, Amazon used to do white label services, Salesforce is uh, e-commerce solution which was used to be sort of demand where uh, used to run some very very large sites like House of Fraser in the UK and and they ran um, uh, a, a lot of very bespoke solutions for some of those customers so you can kind of pick your brand that you want to go with um, I would say at the moment the ones that are the sort of sexiest ones so Shopify and Salesforce seems to be the sort of tech darlings um, SAP um, very strong in uh, sort of business tools and commerce uh, is just part of that. It sits under their customer experience things. Every time, everything a customer touches is kind of sat there, but it's not core to their proposition. Um, it's it, it's in a portfolio of products where Shopify, it, it's do or die e-commerce. Mm. Um, so I, I 
tend to see quite a lot of innovation in companies like that. The other thing that help, has helped them, and I've seen this in Salesforce, is that they have sort of a, like an app center type of environment where they open it up to third parties to effectively create and sell other widgets that you can put on onto your site. So Shopify itself may have a certain set of features, but if you wanted to add um, a 3D product viewer or a loyalty system or something else that you want to grow with your business, you don't have to go and code it. You can just basically install it like you would install a mobile phone application. You pay a small incremental fee and off it goes. And that creates an ecosystem and a community that forces the innovation faster than I'm seeing in the com uh, competitive enterprise products. So they are very much a, um, a challenger. Um, and we have in, internally in our group, we have um, I think we've got sites run on most of most of the vendors that we we, uh, we, we, we service. We have Shopify sites for some of our own brands. We have uh, solutions running on SAP. We have Adobe Magento uh, solutions as well. So so even ourselves, we use things from the portfolio of, of vendors in different ways, depending on what the need is. So it, it isn't you have to be wedded to one solution. Um, it, at face value, it's slightly difficult to, to understand a one fit versus another. Um, there's a very obvious one when you get into pricing. Some of the software as a service platforms charge a percentage of revenue, um, whereas some of the enterprise solutions where it's a big ticket entry price, they don't charge you anything. So if you're doing a billion dollars a year, you don't want to be giving 1% of your margins to someone just for hosting a platform. The economies of that balance shift dramatically. But if you're getting started, 1% of your revenues might not be necessarily a big, uh, a big worry. It might be um, uh, a, a very good um, fee for you to get started and test the market. Yeah. And, and before we perhaps move on to kind of uh, maybe B2B tech, in terms of e-commerce, uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to build a successful e-commerce business? Well, build a successful business first. Um, <laughs> the, the basics, the e-commerce the e is just a tool to allow you to trade 24 seven online. But if if your business model doesn't stack up on paper without e-commerce, then it's it's not uh, not as relevant. So um, so you kind of got to get get that bit right. Have a good, solid business model first. Um, uh, like I said, e-commerce is just the way of reaching out to the customers. There are some clever ways of doing commerce uh, these days. There are people that solely trade through the likes of an Instagram. Uh, it depends what market you're in, um, both in terms of geography and uh, what products you're selling and to what customer. So there are some creative ways of, of doing things. Um, but in terms of building the tech stack itself, um, spend as little as you can to get as much as you can. So whether you're coming up with, uh, well, we talked about Shopify earlier. I mean, can you build a, a, a store with, just get yourself a techie small agency, put a store together in a couple of weeks, sort of hot house it and just see what you can do. Does it work? Trial it with a few customers, do that customer experience feedback and say, well, now you've seen it, does our product look good? Does our proposition look good? Does the price look good? And the customers will give you the feedback. So before you spend half a million dollars plus building something, um, just mm -hmm. go and test the water. Um, so yeah, that, that all the things we talked about uh, uh, previously, all the sort of prerequisites that you need to do before uh, anyone writes any code, because uh, because it's it's expensive to change. You throw lots of stuff away, mainly money, if you yeah. haven't done those prerequisite items first. So um, yeah, in so in, in terms of B two B tech, just jumping jumping over into that realm, there's something that I've seen, um, which again it, it seems to be quite a, a familiar territory for people, where there seems to be a focus on building something that's not actually profitable. The model is more, you know, really built around overselling growth or simply looking at the next raise. You know, improving the valuation. And then mm. you know raising money to burn. What what do you make of that? Um, well, I, I do. Some of my time is spent in in the sort of uh, VC side of the world, looking at uh, businesses we can invest in, and that's quite competitive because uh, there's a lot of startups out there that are looking for anyone's money. Uh, if it's not ours, it's somebody else's. Uh, yeah. And the valuations that are put on these businesses is the they're pretty aggressive. Um, uh, the basic Basic fundamentals to any form of investment um, is 
firstly, have you got a strong commercial proposition? Is it adequately different enough that you're going to stand out from uh, from other people in the market? Have the team that um, uh, that are going to run the business, have they got the skills, credentials, capabilities to, to do it? A, if you're an investor, can you actually work with these guys? They might be a great inventor, but they might be absolutely awful with customers or with staff or whatever. And they're just not someone that you could work with. Um, uh, are they open to listen? Um, are they open to change? Um, is there some way that you can gear that investment against other things? For example, if you own a warehouse company and these guys need a warehouse, can can you as an investor put the two to, together? Can you connect them to, to create the multiples? Because just throwing cash at something and hoping that they go and solve the problem by themselves is highly unlikely. Most of the um, uh, investment startups that I get involved in through, through our business is um, they they're in an early stage of the operation. So they may be pre-revenue, uh, they may be concept, or they may be just taking over, but they don't know how to scale to the, the, the next level. And often that I'm seeing is the very same uh, problems is that the the business plan, the ability to execute, uh, the operational connections that they have, the sort of team, et cetera, are just not strong enough. So you're going to go in and put in money. A lot of that money will be spent on sales and marketing because um, uh, it doesn't really matter how good the product is. I mean, it's got to be basically there. They're not going to invest in it. But if, if you can't get that in front of enough customers, you're never going to convert. Um, and uh, the team itself may be weak. They might have a, a very good ideas guy, might have a very um, uh, whizzy sales guy as the CEO, but they might be utterly incompetent at financial planning. So you can go in and plug those gaps uh, to help them uh, come along. But you've got to get everything to that sort of base level. It's got to be a sort of business in a box before you start worrying uh, dramatically about spending lots of money on the technology. Again, I'm a techie guy, so I love spending money on the technology, don't get me wrong. But if the business fundamentals aren't there, then nobody should be doing it and certainly shouldn't invest in it. Yeah, so interesting points that you've made there and maybe moving into kind of sales and marketing realm. Um, you know, what in your view separates great marketers um, from average ones? You know, what do you want or expect from a CMO? Uh, results. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, the, thing, the, the, the thing is, there's an old saying that a very good friend of mine said is that 50% um, uh, of marketing uh, uh, money is a waste of money. The trouble is you don't know which 50%. And unfortunately, that seems to be some sort of uh, uh, biblical saying that the industry has sat on for a very long time. And, and really, in, in this day and age, especially, say, in, inside digital and a lot of the um, uh, previous agencies I worked at where they were very commerce focused, um, uh, you can see the immediate results of the money you're spending. You know exactly how much the ads are going to cost you. You know what the production costs are going to be. You're going to know the audience. You're going to know the conversion rates. You know the product margin. So you know how much you're going to get back. It's it's very scientific now. Um, so the companies that tend to be very good at doing that are quite focused on getting a direct return. It's harder if you're in PR, brand marketing, et cetera, because the, the KPI metrics are a little bit more opaque. Um, mm. But if you can, if you can, if I mean, a lot of our topic conversation is on commerce, but if you're looking at driving revenues on e-commerce, it is quite scientific. If you're paying large fat retainers to an agency to come up with whizzy creatives, and at the end of the day, all they're going to do is charge you a bunch of money for buying the media ad space off, Google, Facebook, or whoever shoving your ad up and hoping it's a thumb stopping ad and what have you then. Um, mm. it, talk to them about skin in the game, about performance-based marketing is, um, it, it should be quite predictable. It's not just down to the brand to take all the risk because they, in some cases, the brand might not know what's gonna work and what's not. And the job of hiring an agency or a marketing professional or a CMO is that he's gonna tell you, spend your money here on this for this product at this time to this audience, and this is a conversion that we're gonna get. So that avoids a business having to do the sort of, well, let's try it and do a campaign and all that didn't work. Let's try another one. And law of averages, maybe that something works. I, mm. I think the, uh, that, that's an old way of doing stuff, uh, modern ways that you should be able to divert your revenues between the channels on an intraday basis um, based on where your audience is. That said, if you've got a lousy product at the wrong price, it doesn't matter what the marketing are going to do. So it's not all down to them. Yeah, coming back to the, the bit on performance marketing, a challenge that I think I've had with that is 
um, often certain activities like say brand marketing can get attributed to the wrong source. And then what happens is businesses can focus on the wrong activities. So for example, if there's an increase in organic search traffic, then yeah, you know, it will largely be credited down to SEO, but actually if brand is doing its job, well, people will be searching and looking for the brand. So yeah, often I have this kind of battle of performance marketing is all about yeah, KPIs, numbers and attribution models, but sometimes, or at least even though we've reached this point with digital, I find that attribution is still a very cloudy picture and that then there's this kind of battle of, well, the numbers say this, so I'm going to focus on these activities, but actually 50% of what's driving that is from this kind of darker, you know, if you want to call it dark social or whatever, you know, it's, it's a place where it's not very clear cut and yeah. Is there, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, actually I do. We come across an awful lot because we have a lot of B2B customers uh, where they'll do marketing, but the deal is closed offline with the sales associate. So the actual, there isn't a shopping cart, so to speak, online. It's go and have a look, choose the products, but you'll always ring your um, account manager and they'll give you a better price type of a thing. So <clears throat> attributing that, that the traffic that marketing got, all, all the effort there to an abandoned cart, and but actually the sale was still done. So that tends to be a little bit harder. Uh, it's not that it can't be done, um, but there are methods uh, in terms of ensuring that the salespeople are typically, if you're in that type of business, the salespeople are still comped if the deal came from online. Because if there's an incentive uh, uh, for the, um, or a disincentive for the uh, salesperson to not recognize the true source of the channel, don't ask the customer whether it came from uh, an e-commerce lead because actually then I won't get my full compensation because somebody else did the work. You've got to take much more of a holistic view is it doesn't matter how the customer got into um, mm. uh, the sales process is making sure that um, all those tools are available to the salespeople. Um, if you're doing direct B2C, normally with uh, UTM campaign tracking and whatever, um, and voucher codes and QR codes, you can track everything pretty much end to end. Mm. But B2C is still a little bit um, uh, different. Um, obviously, you'll know the techniques of advertising specific uh, URLs, landing pages, product campaign timing, special voucher codes, all those things to try and hook the online to offline experience together and those are all still valid and if, if anyone's doing commerce and they're speaking to a, an agency that has some specialism those tools are already in the kit bag anyway so there's going to be uh, i don't think there's anything particularly missing in that uh, deploying it consistently is key um, mm -hmm. platform wise we obviously on, on, on the clients where we can where they've got the budgets to do this and they're sophisticated enough to understand the need is where you've got a marketing platform content and commerce all coming together then it's very easy to see um, which channel traffic came in from why what campaign they were reacting to was it a tv ad that's completely offline was it a voucher promotion was it an affiliate site and being able to track that in and then being able to dynamically adjust the spend based on what that channel's working better than that one i'm going to drive more traffic so there's a whole bunch of those things that i think are there so the the, the b2b still has a little bit of a way to go in terms of encouraging staff to say uh, this was a source of the traffic and by basically asking the customer um yeah makes sense and and something that popped into my head with that was another challenge i think is by kind of creating buying intent especially in b2b so for example i've seen again a lot of companies where they'll they'll set the metrics almost the wrong way around where they'll say, you know, we need X amount of leads this month, whether that's 2000, 3000, whatever it may be. And when you break down all of the conversion, only 2% of those are actually converting. So you're spending all this money, all of this money on customer acquisition costs are obscene. But at the end, what comes out is, you know, and sales are obviously working their way through these leads. And often sales will be thinking, oh, there's no buying intent here. There's no buying intent. These leads are poor. These leads are poor. And it just confuses me as to why, you know, it, what kind of just working out what the problem is, because, you know, in, in B2B tech in general, um, it would be probably more realistic to assume that 90% of the market isn't ready to buy. 
or 95% isn't looking for a solution and only 5% are. Now, that, that means that you have to engage and influence that 90, 95% and bring them into your world and your content and keep them interested. So, you know, when they do come around, they're thinking of you, you know, your platform, your solution, whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, in terms of buying intent, do you have any, like, do you, have you encountered that kind of in the past and how brands or businesses can in, increase buying intent? Yeah, I mean, there's some... Uh, I mean, you're a big fan of psychology, uh, uh, as am I. And, and there's a few basics that go in, into there, regardless of whether you're in B2C or B2B or, or anything in between, is you've got to understand the customer's mindset as an individual. Uh, an example I use is I, I would be sitting some digital 360 platform as just Malcolm, and I would have some scoring based on my probability of buying something but my probability of actually buying something on a wet monday morning at nine o'clock when i received an email about a reasonably boring kettle i should be uh considering um is going to be a bit limited but on say friday afternoon if it's payday my probability of splashing out money could be quite different but i'm still classed as the same person so it's just about understanding the um the emotional journey of your consumer and where they're going to be as opposed to right okay it's monday morning i didn't hit the company didn't hit sales targets on saturday so we're going to do a mass blast to all our customers on a monday morning and see where that converts well at best it's two percent it's going to convert at so but you'll have probably four percent of customers will unsubscribe so really is that the best thing so nobody minds adverts if it's actually relevant and that relevance is not just about the product it's also about the timing of that so putting some uh, consideration into that um, and, and again if you take the account based selling from a b2c person he'll know when it is um, uh, customer's birthday and he may well ring the customer up and say, hi, uh, just a quick social chat, whatever. They build that relationship. And I think it's got to be about, it's not always about selling. It's about building that relationship with the customer. It's about understanding the needs and asking the customer, what do you want from us as a business? Because very few times do we do that. It's just about assume they want to buy something. It's very, very transactional. And, and in terms of the brands that have a longer term relationship, it's not about the transaction. It's about getting the customers to buy into the journey, the mission, whatever that may be, to try and build some uh, long longer uh, term relationship and um, they do that with loyalty cards and things like that a very again transactional way of trying to achieve that in a, a clumsy manner but if you are a new brand coming to market you've got to have a standout mission why should you buy this for, for mm. us like i said earlier in the conversation i mean pretty much every product you're selling somebody else is selling this a similar comparable product for less money somewhere else you just haven't found them yet so it, it, it is a case of actually um working with the sales and marketing team to in, ensure that you understand how you're going to communicate to uh, to the customers not just about the product but actually about joining in the mission and make them feel part of something beyond that then the customers want to know about typically it's about newness i want to be the first i want to feel special etc etc those type of human nature triggers that we can um uh, help uh, um the with, with the technology and um, and marketing can use those things to say, okay, well, let's give the customers the nudge. And if it's an advert at the right time, at the right place for the right product, the conversion rates go through the roof. Yeah, I like, I like the the focus on beyond the transaction or, again, getting back to the customer um, and building that relevancy. And, and um, to, to be uh, to be respectful of, uh, of your time as well, Malcolm, I think I'll kind of ask you one more final question, which is um, what's kept you sane and grounded uh, through lockdowns and the, the madness that's going on? Well, I don't know if I am saying, I mean, that's a subjective opinion, but uh, um, yeah, it's a long term. I mean, you have to take every opportunity. I, I'm in a fortunate position, um, but I, I've had all sorts of challenges through uh, lockdown. I think I've done five countries during COVID with one form of lockdown or another. So um, when I should have been sat at home for one reason or another, I was being bounced around various different countries trying to find somewhere to, to um, sort of hang out until this all passed. But I take a long term view of it. Um, COVID, as with anything else, as with the financial implications that, that uh, will affect many people at a personal and, and macro level, they will pass. 
things will get a little bit easier. The world is going to be different and, and that change brings opportunity for every store that closes. Someone will open up and start a new business in there. Um, it, it's, it's a shift. So you've got to remain pretty flexible in terms of uh, what you do and how you do it. I mean, from a professional standpoint, there's ne never been a, a more useful time for technology to help businesses and individuals just for I mean, see what Zoom are doing with the technology that we're still using for today, see what e-commerce is doing for, for bringing people closer and making life a little bit more convenient. Um, but I'm also a big fan of ensuring that we don't just use technology on its own, is making sure that we do take time to unplug um uh go for a walk in, enjoy the hour of exercise we're allowed legally to have or whatever and enjoy the fact that there is a little bit less pollution not all of us are having to commute every day the roads are a little bit clearer we're encouraged to spend time with our families whether we like it or not <laughs> so um so I, I think there's there's several positives in there. So um, I'm quite optimistic for the future. I think we've got a bumpy ride for the next few years. Um, I think COVID really practically is going to be with us for a good six to eight months in most countries. Um, and then as things unlock, it won't be the same thing. We won't we'll be jumping on planes for extended periods of time and, and relocating and doing things. But in the meantime, our customers have got used to working with us remotely. And um, when our customers have either had challenges or we've had challenges, we've seen a lot more camaraderie um, uh, helping everyone else through this because everyone really wants everyone to broadly succeed. You might want to be a bit of a winner, but we don't really want everyone, anyone else to fail as a result. So um, I'm seeing a lot of positive sentiment in there. I mean, uh, there's challenges everywhere. I think that the the issues that society has with dealing with COVID and um, globalization and the political upheaval is probably topic for a podcast or two for another day. It's not, not really my area of expertise outside my own personal opinions. Um, but yeah, um, medium to long term, I've got a, um, a bit more of a, a bullish attitude to opportunity um, in the short term. Enjoy hunkering down at home and not having to travel quite so, quite so much. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think it'll be good to see um, from a community point of view. Um, I think just near me, you can see small businesses trying to help each other, especially if it's, you know, small bakeries or whatever it may be. And um, it's nice to see that. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, that kind of gratitude and positivity, it's it's not, um, it, 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 it's, it's been agile as well, isn't it? It's kind of going with the situation and making the best of and, through that finding that actually there's lots of things I can be doing to further myself and whether it is, you know, your business um, and there's, there's going to be a roller coaster to it. It's going to be ups and downs, but um, it, it doesn't have to be completely tragic. It can be, um, you know, hopefully, you know, we, we can't control everything that happens in our lives, but of what we can, we can certainly be a bit more sort of positive and, and grateful. So um, yeah, I, I look forward to, um, yeah, when things do calm down, uh, grabbing a coffee in, in Worcester or wherever. But um, thanks for, uh, you know, answering the questions today and uh, joining me. It's much appreciated. It's a pleasure as always.